1: The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's, and Bruce, I know you've taken the time to check out Inside Trader Joe's. It's a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined, as always, by my colleague at The All-American, Bruce Feldman. And Bruce, we didn't know exactly what we were going to talk about today, and then the NCA dropped some news for us, literally about an hour before we started recording.
2: Yeah, so one of the rules, that proposals that you and I both, and pretty much everybody, I think, across the board felt like was a no-brainer, got pushed through starting this year. It was effectually known as the the red shirt rule. You're happy about this, right?
1: Yeah, it's something that I have been writing about really since I mean, you go back to the bowl season two years ago when Fournette and McCaffrey set out the bowl games and everybody was all up in arms about it. And that was when I think I first wrote about and I'm not saying I created the idea by any means, but first wrote about, hey, well maybe one way to deal with this and to maybe energize those those lesser bowl games a little bit would be to let the freshmen who have redshirted play in them. And then it turned into a much bigger thing and Todd Berry, the director of the AFCA, started championing an actual proposal that would allow the players to play in up to four games. And the bowl game thing ends up being just uh, you know one small part of it. It's really more about and you see teams this happened to Alabama last year with their linebackers, Maryland with their quarterbacks, like they in, the, in this day and age, and the season is longer and longer, you see teams get a bunch of injuries at a specific position, and they end up having to burn a kid's redshirt you know, late in the season. Or in order to protect the guy's redshirt, they'll play somebody else who you know, they don't think is all that good or is not ready. So you know, this was pushed for by the coaches as a means to deal with that. But I think well, in I'll, general, there's a lot of other potential ways they can use it. Well,
2: it also probably cleans up some really dubious accounting that you'd have in place where I remember hearing of stories where how it would have to be worked, whether if a kid had played, but then he couldn't practice because you had to show that he was medically injured. And so it was a little bit of some shady business could happen there as well. So I think it, it takes some of the some of the sting off of that. And I think what we're seeing is, I mean, there's another rule that I, I've heard that's going, that's gonna get enacted I think maybe go into play next year and it it affects recruiting where you would have if you have a kid and you haven't signed them yet a coach could say FaceTime the kid and and teach him elements of their system but once you sign the kid then you can't do that which to me makes no sense because you can do it when they're not part of your program but you can't do it when they are um, and then CAA is going to is changing that rule and, and making it legal and i think sometimes some of these things will work out and that is the ncaa is doing some common sense stuff
1: which is a good thing they're doing some common sense stuff it takes them a long time to do it though this red shirt rule has been i mean years in the making and it originally got tabled in april i guess the hold up that they ended up addressing was just putting specific language in there to make sure people realize that if a kid enrolls at your school in december He can't then suit up for the bowl game or the playoff game and, you know, fall under this, this exception of, okay, that didn't count towards your, towards your four years. So that one took a while, but I mean, the one that's really been a long, long time coming and also passed the same day, transfers can now, you can no longer block a transfer, basically. If a kid wants to transfer, he tells the school that he's transferring, his name goes into a database and any school out there can contact him coinciding with that and something that I've always you know a lot of times when you hear about a coach blocking a kid it would be because he felt like the school tampered and I always thought well, why are they punishing the player for that punish the coach who did the tampering and that's exactly what they're going to do that is now a penalty is now considered an NCAA infraction that a school can be penalized for again I would think we agree good common sense good for the players absolutely absolutely I think
2: it's a good thing and, and what it does you and I have talked about blocking transfers I feel like for a long time and I think one of the things that this legislation kind of cleans up is the idea how do you have a technically a non-compete for somebody who's not an employee because college athletes are not considered employees so it it gets it again goes back to kind of some dubious business but I think that this is in a lot of ways common sense now a lot of people are going to say okay well How is this going to play out in actuality? Now that kind of floodgates, floodgates in this case may be open. We'll see.
1: There was a weird stipulation in there that my staff noticed that I hadn't heard discussed or in any of the coverage leading up to this. That says there's just a one line of language that says conferences are free to adopt more restrictive rules than the NCAA's. But I don't see why you know. So they're saying that theoretically the SEC or the Big Ten could say, you know what. We're not going along with this. You could still uh, put restrictions on kids transferring within your – I would assume the number one thing that would cause is you know, restrictions on transferring within your conference. But you would be immediately putting your whole league at a disadvantage if other sk- leagues you can transfer freely. Um, fine.
2: By the way, can I ask you a favor? Can you not like refer to it as my staff notice? That
1: sounds so full of yourself you just say my colleagues at the, at the athletic noticed? So this is the second time in a week that you've brought this up in some way? I think uh, the last... My staff noticed? Do you, have, do you have a valet on staff, too?
2: Is there stuff that... Does a guy run around with holding a mirror up for you every, every, whenever you need to
1: get groomed? All right, my so a little, sta- a little bit of context here. Uh, <laughs> we have a Slack channel for the whole staff of the All-American, and when a story like this comes down... There's a lot of dialogue in there, a lot of back and forth, you know, in terms of coordinating our coverage of it or noticing things that maybe other people didn't notice or they talked to somebody about it. And that's what I was referring to was the dialogue in there. And so I get what you're saying and I will try to use my language more carefully. But one thing I've noticed is, you know, at this point we've had, let's check here, 18 people have entered this channel since we started it. And you don't seem to understand how to use it still. I think I do. Here's my thing so
2: and maybe this is a uh, open to discussion for it because i'm sure lots of other people use slack in a variety of capacities to me it's one of those things where i feel like i'm already on enough stuff where i will drop in the other day was a good example i was going to reach out to some to uh, somebody and i'm like you know what why don't i just specifically dm this person in slack which is what i did rather than make it public to other people that we're having this conversation it just didn't seem seem like the right thing to do so a lot of times rather than just throw it out to a group of people i just direct it to that person just cuz i feel like it uh, avoids potential headaches
1: no that that's that's fine that's right you know we do plenty of that ourselves basically so when i was at si going back to you know 1999 or whatever it was we used AOL instant messenger and really we used it I think almost up until the time I left, like m- way more recently than I think most of America was still using that product. This is but basically you, just the next version of that.
2: But you have when you have anything, you have more than five people in something where there's a constant thread going. like unless I'm constantly monitoring, I'm gonna miss a lot of stuff. That happened a couple of a couple of days ago. I forgot what the story was, and I was like, hey, anybody seen this? And then I scrolled up a couple of screens, and I saw Matt Fortuna had pointed it out. But to me, that unless, again, I may be using this wrong, but it, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like the most efficient way to do something.
1: You'll get the hang of it eventually. So basically, The Athletic, we don't have a newsroom. There's no central office, and that's not I'm not just talking about college football. I'm talking about the whole company. So Slack is basically our virtual office. And I I think a lot of media companies, a lot of tech companies at this point use that product. It's not like the world's great. I'm not doing an ad for it right now. I'm not saying it's like God's gift to technology, but it has become increasingly common. Anyway, this was a bit of a tangent. I hear what you're saying. It's our staff, it's our colleagues. I'm not trying to make some sort of power trip here, though you guys really got on me last week about a innocent joke about, oh, I see, we were talking about that trip where you know Max Olson and I might go hit the Houston Arizona game and then the A um, and M Clemson game and I think I made a joking reference to I'm on the boss I can approve it and man you like turned that into a whole thing well you know after the podcast
2: Matt Fortuna DM'd me on Slack and said he makes me pick up his laundry
1: WTF and I was like come <laughs> on <laughs> <So>. <laughs> how could I even do that we don't he lives in Chicago yeah okay. Fair enough. All right, let's move
2: on. This is too long of
1: a tangent. Wait, I got one other tangent. We should probably mention to people that um, we had a rare in-person get-together over the weekend. Your family was here in the Bay Area, and uh, it's pretty cool that your kids and my daughter are now both old enough to play with each other. Yeah, it was
2: interesting. for My my kids ended up, we saw three different groups of family friends on that trip, so it was kind of like a little bit of head-spinning for them, but it was a it was a fun a fun trip, and I guess they're at that age now where getting on a plane isn't such an inconvenience, so it was a good weekend, but I gotta admit I got way behind on work being away for basically three days
1: so Riley, your daughter is now famous in my household for a specific reason. she and madeline my two year old were playing up in her room with their with her dolls and I'm, just, I'm guessing she picked up on this from Madeline because Madeline plays this game with her dolls where she changes their diaper. And Riley at one point, I think, said whatever the doll's name is, Jenna or whoever, uh, Jenna did a poop or something like that. And for three days now, all I keep hearing is, Riley said poop. It could be worse. The other one
2: has, has a much more extensive vocabulary with some words that probably she, she doesn't need to know.
1: I'm not worried about that. I just think, you know, Madeline thinks that's the funniest thing she's ever heard in her two years on this planet, that Riley said poop. Riley said poop. Anyway, people probably want to hear us talk about college football. Hey, can you give me a little bit of perspective on something where I know how I feel about it, but I'd rather have an external party tell me? Hunter Johnson, five-star quarterback prospect in the class of 2017, was a freshman at Clemson last year, red-shirted. He's transferring to Northwestern. Northwestern, you may know, does not normally sign five star quarterbacks. They
2: don't <laughs> sign five star anything. The last time they had one was like an underwhelming big receiver from USC. Kyle who, Prater. Yeah.
1: And Kyle Prater at that point had had already, I think, played two years or kind of been realized that he wasn't. Yeah, you exactly. knew he like yeah. I think he signed in the same class as either uh, Robert Woods or Marquis Lee, and it was clear he wasn't gonna be part of that rotation. So I think he ended up starting for Northwestern, but it's not like he had a what you consider to be a five star career? So tell me, how big a deal is this for Northwestern? I mean, it's certainly relevant. I, it's
2: always hard to say when when you get kids who leave who are five star things. Like what I remembered about Hunter Johnson through the Elite Eleven part was he seemed like he was a really competitive kid who was a good athlete because I remember he ran track. And but who knows? You know, it's. Um, there's so many examples of, of five star guys who leave, and then you look at it like, okay, maybe they were three, st- maybe they were actually three star quarterbacks. So we'll so we'll see what's going to be. I know out of another place that recruited him that had him on an official visit that said he seemed like a really good kid and everybody liked him, and that's kind of the same reaction I remember, you know, hearing out of the Clemson camp. But again, you know, who knows? I, I would say. Hopefully, the expectations, because they've never had a five-star quarterback, won't go, go wild there of what, what people are thinking he's going to be. Um, just because we get so many – like I said, we get so many transfer quarterbacks. And it's rare where you can find a five-star quarterback who transferred. With And I'm not including Cam Newton because he's like a unique example. But it's rare when you can think of a five-star quarterback who transferred and then went to the next place. And turned out to be a five-star guy.
1: Yeah. Well, normally a five-star guy doesn't get on the field. There's something wrong with him. But in this case, it's hard to say that because he'd only been there a year. The fact that he wasn't able to beat out Kelly Bryant, who was a fourth-year player at that point, it's not necessarily an indictment of him. And then Trevor Lawrence comes in, and it's just you know this phenom, an even bigger phenom than than this kid would have been. So you just don't know. I mean. The scouting report I got from over there is that he, good arm, accurate, very mature, very cerebral. But I'm sure th- there's got to be a catch, right? There's got to be a catch somewhere.
2: Well, again, I mean, it goes back in a little bit to where we're at with Joe Burrow. Everybody really likes him. But until you've actually done it in games, you know, who knows? You know, and I think that's the that's the challenge in this. I mean, thinking back of some of the five star quarterbacks who transferred, you know, you go down the list. There's the Blake Barnett's. You know, he's transferred twice, and now we'll see what he does as a grad transfer at at USF. Kyle Allen, I like Kyle Allen a lot, but he didn't, you know, he never really did anything for Houston once he got there. Max Brown, five-star guy at USC, you know, really didn't have a ton of success when he left to go to Pitt. Ricky Town was once a five-star guy. You know, that didn't really work out. Gunnar Keel, five-star guy, started out at Notre Dame. That didn't work out. I'm sure there's examples of Jeff Driscoll had a decent, you know, second act. I wouldn't say it was great, but it was a decent second act after he left Florida, right? I don't know. Are there a lot of others that, that you know, you can think of who would fit in that category of five-star quarterback who transferred? Philip Sims, that didn't work out when he left Alabama to much success. It's actually bleaker than I thought now that I'm looking, rattling off these you know this group. Garrett
1: Gilbert, I guess, had some success, right? You know at SMU, I mean, he had a little bit. That's pretty later in his. He didn't. I mean, the the name that's coming to mind for me is Gunnar Keel, just because he. But he transferred. He transferred to Cincinnati, and I think he started for two years, and he was pretty good. Dane Christ liked him a lot, but he didn't have a great second act. Well, at there's KU. A, some of those guys you're saying, like him, you know, were three, four years into their career, and at that point, if they're not a standout. Then yeah, the five star thing probably wasn't warranted. It's by the way,
2: Aaron Corp also a five star who transferred. Here here's one who transferred who I think did have a pretty good second act, and that was Mallet. Mm-hmm. Wasn't great, but I wouldn't have said he had a five you know, like had a five star college career, but he had success at Arkansas. Mitch Mustaine, not really. You know what? I mean, I've gone through this. There's really nobody who's close to having even close to having a uh you know, a five star kind of career once they've transferred.
1: My bigger concern for him would be that Northwestern has been running the same offense since almost since when Fitz got there and took over in two thousand six. And if you look at the list of quarterbacks that have come through there, this is this is I mean they've had some good offenses and they've had some decent quarterbacks who have at least gotten some run in the NFL. but it's not uh, i mean it's it's more it's more a rushing offense. you know, I'm looking. I just pulled up there. Single season passing list. You have to go back to Mike Kafka. Remember him?
2: Oh yeah, he's coaching in the NFL. Yeah, two thousand nine.
1: For somebody who had more passing yards than Clayton Thorson's thirty one eighty two in twenty sixteen, Clayton Thorson had twenty eight forty four last season. The most touchdown passing touchdowns in a season under. Under this coaching staff was Clayton Thorson in 2016 with 22, 22 touchdowns. I mean, these are these are very modest numbers. Okay, well, are you, you, your uh, expectations measured,
2: or are you uh, you expecting huge numbers? No,
1: I, I think he'll be. I, I assume he'll be an upgrade from what they've had in the past. Uh, I would assume he'll win the job, and then we'll see from there. You know, it's there's so many parts that go into it. What will his supporting cast be like at that point? How well will he pick up the offense? All the things that happen with any quarterback. But between this development and the new, you know, ridiculous lakeside facility that's been getting so much attention, it does seem like, and they are coming off a 10-win season, I mean, it does seem like kind of a peak time right now for that program.
2: How is the stadium there, by the way? they done a lot of work
1: on that, too. I don't know that they've done much work in it recently. I mean, it's a very nice stadium. But at one point, you didn't even have lights on it, right? Uh, well, you're going way back. And <laughs> in the 90s, you're talking about Dyke Stadium back in the uh, the mid-90s. They've, my senior year of college in 1997, they renovated it. It became Ryan Field. And it's looked pretty much that way ever since. And it's a nice stadium. The problem is, when they play Michigan or Nebraska or Ohio State, half the stands are the other team's color.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's unfortunate, especially when you – had a decent amount of success as they have over the last decade right
1: should we turn our attention to the mailbag
2: <laughs> yes let's do it
1: as always you can send your emails to the audible pod at gmail.com and bruce last week's mailbag was a particularly big hit the discussion we ended up having about wisconsin i think was one of the better ones we've had on this podcast
2: it was uh did you get any feedback from your readers that you were right or wrong
1: Wisconsin fans are very polite, I must say. I did not get any angry emails or tweets. I just got a couple people, uh, you know, making the counter argument, which is perfectly valid. And by the way, if you are a Wisconsin fan, Jesse Temple started covering the Batrangers for us this week, and his first story that I know you read, Bruce, about the Wisconsin offense eating at Red Robin with the Wisconsin offensive line was fantastic and a little gross, frankly. I'm not a huge fan of Red Robin, I don't know about you, but. The Wisconsin they offensive have uh, good Lugley.
2: strawberry lemonade Stew.
1: and they have bottomless fries, which you can see why ot- offensive linemen would like it. Who wouldn't like bottomless fries? Okay, first question this week comes from Justin McGovern. Hey, Bruce and Stu, I would like to ask you guys if you could humor me with what ifs and wild guessing. In 2015, Florida was six and zero and rolling until Will Greer was suspended before the LSU game. If Greer was not suspended, do you guys think Florida could have made the playoff? Keep in mind that Florida was leading Alabama late in the second quarter of the SEC championship game with an FCS receiver playing quarterback. Who was that again? Uh, Treon Harris? Treon Harris? Yeah. So
2: it's interesting this came up. About a week and a half ago, I'm at the Elite 11. It's a Friday night, and I know Will Greer pretty well. I don't really know Drew Locke very well, but I'm talking to Will Greer, Drew Locke. Shows up, we start talking about one of the games in this season. And they both went, it turned into this little tangent about for five minutes about how nasty the 2015 Gator defense was. Because it was, I think it was Drew Locke's, it was actually his second start. We thought it was his first start. And UF1, I think it was 2021 20, to six or something like that. But uh, they started rattling off the talent on the defense. And it was it was legit national title caliber defense. When you talk about like just the talent that they had, obviously the offense was really underwhelming, especially after uh, they were you know they had no more Will Greer. I, the the uh, game where they played Florida State at home, they lose twenty seven to two. My guess is they would have stubbed their toes somewhere along the way just to have a young quarterback and so much. I mean, I think as good as the defense was, I just think offensively they were just not good enough to me to to make that kind of did run. Did Will
1: Greer play in the LSU game or he was suspended by then? Cuz so that was I remember that being a really
2: good game. He no, they lost 35-28, so he didn't. It was the it was Treon Harris's second start.
1: Well, the weird thing is Treon Harris did play in that LSU game at Tiger Stadium when they were 6 and 0 and it was a 35-28 game. So at that point it seemed like they might be able to still have a great season, but it wasn't that long before, <laughs> oh gosh, there were some painful ones here. They beat Vanderbilt, and I remember watching this, they beat Vanderbilt 9-7. to They, FAU, pre-Lane Kiffin, took them to overtime, and then, like you said, lost 27-2 to Florida State. You know, I'm going to agree. I'm going to agree with, yeah. You know, would they have stubbed their toe? Yes. But could they have gotten into the SEC title game and possibly beaten Alabama? I think so because that Alabama team, even though it won the national championship, I don't think was the greatest of the Nick Saban era. It was a team that Jake Coker was a good but not great quarterback. They basically rode Derrick Henry into the ground practically. I don't know. Am I, am I being too? Uh, am I giving them a little too much credit in hindsight? I don't know. I mean, you
2: know, like that's what that's the point. You never know.
1: Well, the bigger yeah. question, and I actually, as I started reading, I thought this was going to be his question. If Will Gert never gets suspended, is Jim McElwain still the Florida coach? That is a good question. Because we've seen how how good he is. Yeah,
2: I think that's a – you know what? If you have a quarterback, you have a good chance. And they had so many revolving door with injuries and guys not working out. I think he still is the coach there, yes. Next question. Next question. Chris Pugh, huge fan of the show, got a question for the mailbag. I am a Georgia fan, but also just love college football in general. I was born in Texas. My whole family lives there, so I have a lot of Aggie and Longhorn family members. I was curious if you guys think the people at either school will allow a great rivalry to play again. Don't you guys think it's a shame that we don't get to see Tom Herman versus Jimbo Fisher? How exciting would that be for college football in general?
1: Yeah, I think they'll play again. Everybody just needs to get over themselves. There's been enough regime change at both of those schools I mean, both the president and AD jobs at both schools have turned over at least once since the split in uh, you know in realignment. Chris Del Conte's at Texas now. He's a smart guy. He's going to do what's right for the program. Scott Woodward's at A and M. They're paying Jimbo Fisher a lot of money. You know, at this point, I would assume one of the big holdups. Even if even if all parties agreed to do it tomorrow, you've already booked up non-conference games many years into the future. How do you work around that? Home games versus road games, etc. So I'm not saying there aren't complications, but Notre Dame and Michigan had kind of an ugly uh, divorce a few years ago and when a game got canceled pretty um, on pretty short notice, but they're playing again this year. It, it'll happen, and I do hope it happens when, when it's Tom Herman versus Jimbo Fisher. I would have loved for it to have happened when it was Kevin Sumlin versus Charlie Strong. We'll see how many coaching changes these schools go through before they actually play each other again.
2: Stu, I'm going to ask you. This so seeing this question made me think: Who do you think has a better chance to get to the playoff first, Tom Herman or Jimbo Fisher?
1: That is a great question, and I'm going to go with Tom Herman for two reasons: one, he has a one-year head start, and two, he's not in the same division as Alabama. Yeah, that's pretty reasonable. He's not in that division, but he's not in a A&M yeah. situation. All right, Simon Radford asked two questions. And, you know, we like to spread the wealth, so maybe I would normally only pick one, but they're both really good. If you had a budget as a head coach, how would you theoretically divide it up between the assistants? Is coaching at some positions simply more valuable than others due to the nature of the positions?
2: One thing, and I've seen this example, and maybe the best example of it, is Florida under Will Muschamp. I would make sure that my offensive coordinator and my offensive line coach love each other. Love each other like they're Sam Pittman and Jim Chaney love each other. Because if that relationship is not really good, I don't care who your defensive coordinator is, you're going to have problems. Now, that doesn't mean you know, if they're best buddies that you're going to have a great offense. But if they're, if they're not on the same page, I think you're almost doomed. So I would really try to make sure that that was well fortified. As far as some of the other position coaches... Not to say, you know, you may have a given position coach that's a recruiter guy than others, but I think it varies on just how much you value each individual position coach beyond, I mean, you could have a great D-line coach, or you could have a great running backs coach, or you can have a great receivers coach or whatever. But I I just think that those guys, not to say they don't work together, but to me, the most critical piece is the O-line guy tied with the offensive coordinator.
1: Yeah, and, and I have seen more and more programs doing that. That's how Jeremy Pruitt approached his O-line OC hire. In terms of, like, allocating pay, I mean, obviously your coordinators are very important. I think if you've got a guy who is your, you know, clearly best recruiter, I think you got to go with – got to pay him well. But other than that, I do think – I don't want to say the position coaches are kind of interchangeable, but they do change over so frequently that it doesn't seem like it's going to – having the right running bass coach is gonna make or break your team. Now here's one I've always wondered about and you're gonna agree with me on this. I remember a couple years ago when Kirby Smart tried to hire Scott Cochran away from Alabama, Saban gave him a huge raise. I wanna say he's making in the like five hundred thousand or something like that. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, oh my God, spending that much money on a strength coach. I think the strength coach is more important than the position coaches. I would, If I'm going to allocate my resources, I'm making damn sure I get the right strength coach.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, here's a, here's a good example. Urban Meyer, who is the one constant on his staff? Mickey Marathi. If you ask him who is the guy who's most valuable, that's his guy. That's the 1A. Uh, and I think you see that with a lot of places. And if you can't get that higher right, I mean, those are the guys who are with the players the most in the offseason. season. And beyond just recruiting, it's recruiting and development. Well, who holds as big a role in development as any? The strength
1: coach. Yeah, and, and the strength coach then ends up hiring a bunch of people under him. Like, to me, that's uh, that's that's a very overlooked part of college football. Now, I don't know how many guys... I honestly may... don't think it's that overlooked. I think it's overlooked. By the fans,
2: by some, it may be overlooked. Maybe by some, <laughs> but even like even the people who overlook it, I just think it's like either they don't get it or, I mean... If you ask anybody who's in coaching, they'll pretty much tell you this. It's just, you know, like, and I feel like I've gotten, you know, it's kind of like a, a hackney joke for me, to, you know, or whatever. But it's like these guys matter way more than, I mean, because, they're, because their impact, if you look at how much time the players spend with them.
1: Well, that's exactly uh, right. These, that's why I'm saying this. These guys, if you go through, you know, count up the entire year, not just football season— These guys spend way more time with the players than their position coaches do.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the first story I did for The Athletic was on the evaluation and development of that great D-line at NC State. And the D-line coach got a lot of credit for it, but he was quick to point out their strength coach, D'Antonio Burnett, probably deserves as much credit for those guys as anybody. And I think that's the key piece, especially when when you have some consistency there. I mean, to Tennessee at one point, and this goes back to, to the end of former Lane Kiffin had a bunch of strength coaches, and then Dooley had a few strength coaches. That makes it almost impossible to get any continuity when you've had like seven strength coaches in four yeah, years. Yeah. Uh, the second question, I will take it from Simon, is which college football player most surprised you by taking the NFL by storm, who mm-hmm. you never thought would or could, and who is the biggest surprise
1: and why? Well, I think that the biggest surprise—I don't know if it's the biggest surprise ever—but it's fresh on our minds. I would not have expected Alvin Kamara to come out and be go from being the the one B running back at Tennessee to and if, is he getting rookie of the year? I mean, he was, yeah. NFL rookie of the year. I mean, come on. All the great running backs that came out of college in the last few years, nobody would have put him on that list and so that that one is fresh in my mind and in terms of i I bring this one up a lot if if there was a guy i I know
2: who you're gonna say but go ahead
1: if there was a guy i don't think you do if there was a guy same position if there was a guy who i'd be like oh yeah that guy is like the trent richardson yes trent richardson what the heck happened there i mean i don't think i was alone i think most people that covered alabama during that time when it was him and ingram were like why isn't this guy the lead running back? And Mark Ingram won the Heisman and has gone on to have a nice uh, pro career. Trent Richardson was the guy. And I think he went number three overall. So obviously the NFL agreed. What happened?
2: Yeah, it's a, to me that is that is as good as any. I mean, look, running backs are, are quirky. I mean, FAU, had Alver, Alfred Morris turned out to be a really good NFL running back. And, it, you know, it's not to say you wouldn't have noticed it, but I just think sometimes guys – In college, you know, whatever it's systems or however it plays out, they turn out to be way, way better than you thought.
1: You know, I just thought of another guy, kind of like Alvin Kamara. Remember the Steelers pre-Le'Veon Bell, Willie Parker, who was basically, I think he was either the backup at North Carolina or, or even, or, I mean, he played at UNC and he was just a complete afterthought. And he, I think he ended up going up to Pro Bowls and he definitely was the running back on their um, last team that won the Super Bowl.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, like, running backs are like that, I think. I mean, look, I mean, how many quarterbacks have we seen that have, like, gone one way or complete the other, where you're like, okay. I mean, which which quarterback would you say would be, okay, I was most wrong about him?
1: Uh, your colleague, my fu- former colleague, Matt Leinart. I had no reason to think he wouldn't be a, you know, multiple-time uh, Pro Bowl NFL quarterback. hmm He's gonna hate hearing that, but it's not like I'm the first person to bring that up. Nice. Why? What about you? I thought Matt was gonna.
2: I thought Matt would have had a you know a, a longer career.
1: I feel like more often I'm right about the ones that flop, like Blaine Gabbert and Jake Locker. You know, Ryan Tannehill has hung around longer than I would have expected. Yeah, his issue has been staying healthy. Yeah, but like, I mean, he 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 played what one year of quarterback at a And and and. I, I couldn't believe he went as high as he did but he's i think basically you know you would consider him to have been a success at this point which guys who did you think would be great quarterbacks in the nfl coming out of college that didn't end up being great no just in the last
2: like guys who came out of college in the last 10 years quarterbacks
1: well i thought uh, teddy bridgewater would be really good and just you know how do you how do you um he can't stay healthy he yeah he can't been. stay healthy how do how do you really evaluate that one there's guys. There's a couple guys who were really good players in college. Like I never understood what happened with Matt Barkley. He was such a acclaimed quarterback for four years in college, and but it's not like he was a first round pick who flopped. He ended up not even going until the fourth round.
2: Yeah, I actually thought uh, Colt McCoy would have been a little better than he yeah. was.
1: Did you think Tebow would be good in, in the NFL? I can't remember. <laughs> that that that's been so rehashed so many times. I think I think I was higher on him than most, but I don't think I, I – I thought he would be an NFL starting quarterback for – I mean, because
2: didn't you – you actually said he was like – when we did that list a year ago, of their, you had him in your top five, right?
1: Oh, he's one of the greatest players to ever play college football. He's – if you were starting a team, he'd be one of the fir- very first ones on the list. I know Cam would be yours. I knew that he was – I mean, he was unconventional. He was a, practically a fullback playing quarterback, so I thought – so I, I, w- I don't think I thought he'd be the next uh, John Elway by any means, but I definitely thought he would do. I mean, he was, uh, we don't have to rehash this, obviously. He he turned out he couldn't really throw, and uh, I did not necessarily <laughs> see that coming because he was actually a pretty highly rated passer in college. And I'm just trying to see if there's any more here. I, th- I think I maybe thought Chad Henney would be better. Uh, really? Okay. Um, oh, what about Sam Bradford?
2: He has not been able to stay healthy at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Uh, Okay, let's go on to Joe Simmons' question. Stuart and Bruce, my buddies and I road trip to a destination college football game each year to soak in the atmosphere and see a game. That is very awesome. But we're familiar with the power conferences that have hit a ton of the bucket list stadiums. What are some great group of five stadiums to visit? We're looking for a fun atmosphere slash environment and not concerned with a high-quality game. would love to hear your thoughts. Joe Simmons.
1: I'd be lying if I said I've been to a lot of games, a group of five stadiums. One that stands out immediately, though, is Air Force. That was a fantastic experience. And I have not been to a game at the other service academies. Yeah, I'm have, I, Army is, is unbelievable.
2: Yeah, I grew up near Mikey Stadium. That, is, that was one I was going to suggest. I would also suggest go to a game at Boise State. Yep, yep. Their yep. facilities are really go- good. It's a cool town.
1: You know, I would actually, if I had unlimited time and resources... You're the boss, Stu, as you as you so subtly
2: point out and remind folks of. Yeah, well... You have unlimited time and resources.
1: But part of that is I have to allocate the resources smartly, and this would not be maybe necessarily that, but I'd like to go see a game. I would like to do a Maction tour. I would like to go see a game at a bunch of those stadiums like Toledo and Bowling Green and... Well, you could Ohio. do Toledo and Bowling Green and on the same see, day, so... You know that you see on TV on a Tuesday night every season, half full, maybe not even half full, but I want to experience weeknight action.
2: Toledo is really a cool campus. I was there a year ago, and it's it's like it got a lot of charm to it. I like the campus. The stadium is cool. I would suggest go to an East Carolina game. That place feels a little like an like a little SEC town. Now the program is down, but. I would say that's a place to go check
1: out i don't I, I don't byu is not a group of five school but if he's maybe saying non-power program power conferences i mean that would right be right at the top of the list that's a big time place
2: yeah i can't say i've seen games at you know like i've been to some randoms i've been to utsa which is you know where the spurs used to play you know for a game i've been to san jose state that was I'm trying to think of
1: some other randoms. Oh, you know where I'd like to... to go? Appalachian State. There you go. Good that's, suggestion. That's, a, that's supposed to be a great atmosphere. And then let me just warn you off of a couple. <laughs> I've been to games at Nevada, one game at Nevada, a really memorable game. It was really, really cold and uh, nothing really to speak of in terms of the stadium. And don't don't go to a San Jose State game. It'll just depress you.
2: I went to one one of those
1: myself. That was a long so. time ago, right?
2: Yeah, it was Neil Perry's game.
1: Were they decent? Yeah. Was
2: they there were a okay. crowd? Well, there was because Neil Perry was making history. Gotcha. That night, so,
1: I went to the um, game that start you know week zero last year against uh, USF, mm-hmm. and uh, it was pretty empty. They're not good. And at halftime, I went to the one. I think there may be two concession stands in the whole stadium, and I went to one and tried to order, I don't know, a hamburger or something, and they were out at halftime of a game where there were not that many spectators to begin with.
2: Well, I hope, Stu, you'd be open to maybe checking out a little USM Appalachian State Week 3.
1: How about that? Oh, we talked about, yeah, I'd be up for that. Also, if, if this road trip that I talked about last week comes through, I'm going to see a game at Houston.
2: Okay, that's the TDECU Stadium.
1: Okay. Oh wait, there's a bunch in the American actually we should be talking well, about. Go see a game at Nippert Stadium. Historic Nippert Stadium. Did you go to games? Did you sell
2: did you sell peanuts there when you were a little kid?
1: The first college football game I ever attended was actually a Cincinnati Rutgers game at Nippert Stadium. But this was like old, old Nippert Stadium, like really, really bad shape. They actually did a great they've done a nice job with it. It's a cool stadium. It's right in the center of campus, so You would almost not know it's there until you kind of show up and until you're right in front of it. What else? What else in that conference?
2: I went to a UConn game, but this is before they redid the stadium. You've been to a UCF game? uh, At their uh, new stadium? I've been to, no. I was at their old stadium for the old Under Armour game, so I have not seen that. I've seen Tulsa, but never at their stadium. Tulane, I have not seen their new stadium. I have not, not, uh, not been to usf for a game i've been to smu but not for a game memphis i've seen their spring game that was a less than that's <laughs> an impressive people, right? play yeah that was a Ooh, less than impressive No, venue. that's
1: not all right let's just we've given him a lot of ideas why don't we narrow it down to two what should be his top two go to army go to, to army. go to mikey stadium and then
2: finish the year out with troy neil brown's team going to play appalachian state on the road in boone go to that game
1: great Back to the podcast in a second, but first, Bruce, how are you shaving these days?
2: Oh, Stu, just like a professional, and I'm, I'm TV ready right now. I feel like I shaved this morning. I feel like I'm ready to go out and get on the sidelines right now, and I can't wait to kick off
1: the season. And you're doing that because of Dollar Shave Club's Daily Essential Starter Set, aren't you?
2: I am, Stu. It's a go-to and it is a great sponsor. Our listeners should definitely take us up on this one.
1: Dollar Shave Club has everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. You name it, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a wipe that will leave your tush feeling tingly clean. I'm a big fan of their Amber and Lavender Calming Body Cleanser. Never smelled anything like it. Good luck finding a product that great at the store. And all of Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. You feel the difference. And plus shipping is included with your membership. So here's what we want you to do to get a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products for just five bucks. You can get their daily essential starter set. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need for the bathroom. So check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com audible. It's dollarshaveclub.com slash audible. Andy in Switzerland. Guys, love the pod,
2: especially here in the offseason where we are jonesing for more football. On your last episode, Stu got the Wisconsin conversation down to brass tacks. Is that how it is, brass tacks? Yes. By asking who was the last champion who was not a blue bud, my answer would have been Clemson. Yeah, they won a national title in 1981, but between 1991 and 2011, they never won their own conference and had only one finish in the AP Top 20. That is a heck of a stat. Interestingly, their name barely came up in the discussion because they clearly now have earned blue blood status, though it didn't happen overnight. Stewart's logic about how hard it is for an up-and-comer to beat two top four teams holds a lot of water. So the other question is, who can get a blue blood transfusion to reach that level? Maybe UCLA? Or is the only likely answer to come from former blue bloods like Michigan, Nebraska, USC, Texas, or Miami regaining form? Thanks for the good times. Andy in Switzerland. Andy, thank you for the question.
1: Great question from Andy in Switzerland, whose wedding I may or may not have attended. Wait, what? Yes, I know Andy. Uh, But that's a great question. So first of all, he's right. Clemson, not a blue blood. I guess I was thinking of programs that either haven't won a national title before or... I mean, look, by the time Clemson won that national title, they were recruiting. And they were always a decent... They were recruit- always recruiting. I remember recruiting. being... I remember working on a signing day show in 2011,
2: my last year at ESPN. And they had Stefan Anthony and they, like... They, on the hat day, they were pulling five stars. Yeah. Now, before that, yeah. they had C.J. Spiller. I mean, it's not like they were not, like... Again, I, I feel like whether they were you want to call them a blue blood or not, this was this was a team that had ample recruiting juice, and they were committed to playing
1: football. That's absolutely right. So call them a blue blood or not, at the end of the day, they recruit at a level to be able to beat, uh, and they're committed to playing football at the highest level. Yeah, they 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 have the talent. They they always not always, but they, by the time it happened, they definitely had the talent to beat two top four teams in a row in January Wisconsin I still believe does not even though they're very good. So, to answer that question, okay, where would a new where would the next Clemson, let's just blue let's not let's leave out the blue blood designation. The next Clemson, the next team that either has never won one or hasn't won one in a long time.
2: Or would fit in the category of sleeping giant?
1: Yeah, I mean
2: do you want to go down my road with 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 my Nebraska story from a couple of, from two months ago with Scott
1: Frost? But has Nebraska really stopped being a blue blood? They've been pretty pretty average for like the last fifteen years. They have, but they've still remained a pretty prestigious college football brand. I, I mean, mean, if you're going to say I, that, then you can, then
2: you got to knock. I mean, USC, Miami, then a lot of the questions your your former groomsman has brought up is. <laughs> has uh is kind of
1: deflated then i mean i have the same question about Nebraska. i brought up that exact question about nebraska whenever and i get this question in the mailbag every single week can scott frost you know lead them back to glory and i say he can win big 10 championships he can do everything that wisconsin's doing can he get them to the point where they're recruiting top 10 classes and have the same kind of you know when we say talent we're not just talking about the starting 22 i mean The teams that win the national title, like Alabama, like Clemson, like Ohio State, have future pros backing up future pros. Can Nebraska get to that point? I'm skeptical. What do you think? I
2: think they can. I I definitely think they can. Do you need top 10 classes? I don't think you do. You need top 20 classes, and I think he can do that. Count me a believer on that. Now, that wouldn't be my only answer on that, but... I think when you start to look back at some of these, I know you. We talked about this the other day with Oregon, again, but it's not that far. It's not that far-fetched. I mean, to think that you could have somebody who doesn't have like these loaded, loaded, you know, num- you know, like what what Georgia has had or what Clemson has had. I mean, when I, I'm looking this up right now as we speak. So, in 2006, do you know what Oregon's class, that would be part of the class that was a nucleus for that 2009 team that almost won the national title came down on uh, last you're,
1: you're, you're a year early. It was the 2010 team 2010?
2: Okay, 2010. Okay. But do you know what some of these classes they had were? Oh, I'm guessing they were in the 30's. I mean, so the first class was ranked 50th, then it was 14th, then it was 34th, and then the last one
1: before that was 30. The interesting thing is they would still get a Jonathan Stewart or five-star defensive tackle who played in the NFL for a long time. Um, Uh, Haloti Nata. Haloti Nata. But you're right. On the whole, they weren't weren't recruiting 11. They came very close. There's no question about that. So, UCLA, he brought up. Texas A&M comes to mind. The difference between those two. Texas A&M, huge, huge commitment to football, trying to win national championships. UCLA has made a Bigger commitment recently, but I don't think that that is a sleeping giant in terms of what Clemson, the the, the kind of stuff Clemson was doing. So by your
2: lane, there's no Alabama's in that A and M division. Yep. Which would you be more surprised if UCLA gets into the playoff or if A and M gets in the playoff within
1: five years? Which would I be more surprised, UCLA? I do think, I have no doubt Chip Kelly will get that thing rolling there. But to make the playoff, and, and they could certainly make the playoff. But Jimbo Fisher is a really good coach too, and he's doing it at a place with a lot more, a lot more recent history. I mean, Kevin, someone was recruiting classes that, if you develop them right and whatever, would put you in a position to contend for national titles. UCLA comes is not quite at that level. They certainly do recruit decent classes when they're doing well. Which I don't know. I don't. Know. I that's a really hard question. What's your answer? I'm going to say UCLA. That you'd be they, more surprised at. No, I'm sorry. I would be. I would say a and um
2: I think Jimbo Fisher's a really, really good coach, but they have Alabama in there. I don't. There's nothing like Alabama right now in, in the Pac-12 South. Nothing close. And I think he will get it going. I mean, you look at his record of what he did at Oregon. By the way, the recruiting numbers, and this is not off the top of my head because I just did this state of the program for Stu's site. This week, so their last four classes, nothing was ranked below twenty. It was a lot of classes in the teens, but I think this is an example. And if anybody wants, hopefully, this story will be up, you know, later this week. This was, from what I gather, was it seemed to be a case of they recruited off the star system, and sometimes that comes back to bite, bite you. And I think it really did for UCLA. They had one class that had it was the Josh Rosen class. He was about the only one who really turned out to be a real. Big big impact guy. They have two other guys who are decent, but they had ten guys who were ranked in the top thirty, top three hundred. Five guys in the top hundred, including Soso Jamabo, who really hasn't worked out. And it was a lot of guys who either aren't there anymore, left early, or just didn't pan out. And so again, I, I that's where I get into the part where I'm like, don't immediately. I'm saying it's harder, but don't immediately say it just can't happen for Wisconsin or Nebraska.
1: I'm less likely to say that about Nebraska. Wisconsin, we shall see. It would be interesting if Wisconsin ends up winning the national title this season and I'll end up having to be like a pinata at the national title parade.
2: Yeah, well,
1: I look, like you said, those pe-
2: everybody there is pretty good sports about it. So
1: Nicest people. Can't, can't say enough good things about Wisconsin Badgers fans. And that's why they should subscribe to the athletic at uh the athletic.com slash all American Expansion. Forty percent off, two ninety nine a month. Can't beat it. Very subtle, Stu. Very subtle. As always, send those questions to the Audible at gmail.com. That's all we got for now. See you next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to the Audible. On Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, leave a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's. We'd also like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible.com. Where you get a 25% discount and a seven day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time.